And we're live with JavaScript Air. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Kenzie Dodds, and I'm your host for this JavaScript broadcast podcast coming at you live from um, the canyon of Provo, Provo Canyon um, in, uh, in Utah. So I'm on vacation with my family, and my wife was gracious enough to give me this hour of time away to um, bring to you all some awesome content from some awesome people about managing dependencies like a boss. So that is our show today. Um, we have some subject matter experts on that. Um, but before we get into that, I'd like to give a shout out to the sponsors who make this show possible. So our first sponsor is Egghead.io. Um, and they have a huge library of bite-sized web development training videos. Check them out for content on JavaScript, Angular, React, Node, and much more. And Egghead.io is also the host of two free courses about Redux from Dan Abramoff. Find them at Egghead.io slash Redux. And Frontend Masters is a recorded expert-led workshop with courses on advanced JavaScript, asynchronous, and functional JS, as well as lots of other great courses on front-end topics. I think Brian Holt just released a Redux React React Router uh, course. That's awesome, I hear. So check that out. And then TrackJS reports bugs in your JavaScript before customers notice them. And with their telemetry timeline, you'll have the context to actually fix them. Check them out and start tracking JavaScript errors today at trackjs.com. And WebStorm is a powerful JavaScript IDE. Try, uh, give it a try for a more productive development uh, with ES6, Angular, and React. Use the discount code JavaScriptAir at checkout uh, at jetbrains.com WebStorm to get 20% off your WebStorm personal subscription. And Trading Technologies is looking for passionate and inventive full-stack JavaScript developers who want to work on cutting-edge solutions in a collaborative and challenging environment to go help them build the top choice platform for derivative traders. All right, sweet. So that is uh, our sponsors. Super grateful for them. Um, let's go ahead and uh, I, I actually have a couple more announcements. So one other uh, thing that's cool about this show is that it's because it's live, we uh, can interact with you, the people who are watching live. And so if you have questions about managing dependencies or what our favorite ice cream is, uh, actually, I probably won't ask that question, but maybe. Uh, then you can ask those kinds of questions with the hashtag JSAirQuestion on Twitter, and uh, we'll look at those at the end of the show and, and run through those. Um, one other announcement, it's not a normal announcement, it's kind of sad news, is Hangouts on Air, the uh, software um, that uh, we use to create this show and that does like so much for us from Google, um, is actually being shut down and uh, being swallowed into YouTube Live. And as far as I know, YouTube Live isn't capable of the uh, video chat um, features that Google Hangouts on Air is capable of. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, yeah, because of that, I am looking for an alternative uh, that can do basically everything that Hangouts on Air does for me. So um, have a chat that's recorded and made live, avail av available live, and then made available on YouTube automatically after. If I can't find something like that, then I'll probably shut down JavaScript yet, um, to be totally honest. And that wouldn't be a terrible uh, thing for me because I'd get some of my life back, but it would be really sad um, because there's lots of great stuff coming out of JavaScript Air. So if you're interested um, in JavaScript Air continuing, um, then please uh, feel free to suggest an alternative to Hangouts on Air um, for me to, to look into. Uh, but yeah, that's technically they're shutting down. They have a hard shut shutdown on September 12th, and uh, so that might be when the show's over. We'll see. Um, great, so that's kind of wipe a tear there. Um, but uh, yeah, so a couple other announcements. Um, so this is a weekly show, and, and uh, next week is a special show. 
it's going to be on Friday, not the normal Wednesday, uh, because we're going to be on-site at React Rally here in Utah. It's going to be fantastic. React Rally was wonderful last year. It's going to be even better this year. Um, and so we're going to be talking to um, attendees and, and speakers, maybe organizers, on-site at React Rally. It's going to be sweet. So yeah, Friday, the 26th of August at 12 p.m. Central Time, I think. That time might change. So keep an eye on the website. As always, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus to keep up with the latest. And uh, that's that's that for announcements. So let's go ahead and introduce our guests. Um, so first, we have Benjamin Coe. Hey, I, I'm, as uh, Kent says, I'm Benjamin Coe, and I'm the third employee at MPM where we do a lot of stuff with dependencies, and I care a lot about dependencies. Uh, in my copious amounts of spare time, I am also one of the lead maintainers of Yargs, everyone's favorite pirate-themed command line parser, and Istanbul, the code coverage tool. So that's, uh, I have a lot of interest in, in dependencies and open source software development. Awesome. Yeah, I've, I've, historically I've used Commander for my um, command line tooling stuff, but like I've seen other um, CLIs that are using Yargs, and I feel like it it uh, is a bit more powerful. So I'm gonna look into it on my next CLI project. Um, so cool. And uh, Stefan Bormann. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm joining you from Berlin today, I, and I'm working on Greenkeeper, which is a service uh, specifically to manage dependencies, so it's pretty much um, fitting the topic today. Um, I'm also working on semantic relief, something we talked um, on an episode one month ago, I think, and I um, work on Hoodie, the um, application framework thing. Um, that you should check out at hood.ie, but it's not related to dependencies. But a lot of the ideas come out of developing it, so um, it's kind of related. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. And Ashley G. Williams should hopefully be joining us sh uh, shortly um, as well. So we'll, we'll say hi to her when she comes up. So, sweet. Um, let's jump into our conversation today. So like uh, both of you mentioned, we, we are going to be talking about, well, we all mentioned this, we're, we're going to be talking about uh, managing de uh, dependencies today, um, and especially in the NPM and, and uh, the Node ecosystem, uh, dependencies play a huge role. Um, we, we're kind of like, uh, in, in this community, it's kind of a hyper-dependency uh, community if you compare it to other um, communities that I'm familiar with. Um, so I think the a first good question to kick us off, though, is why why do we even need dependencies? Why don't we just write everything ourselves? I, I think that uh, what's great about the the NPM ecosystem is you can you can kind of concentrate on the thing you're an expert at. So like Yarg is like we care about command line argument parsing, and I don't care about you know a good camel case algorithm. By re relying on you know a camel case dependency, you can let someone else be an expert at that. Let them write unit tests for that, and and it just allows you to just I think concentrate on a, a very very thin area of expertise when you're writing software, which which I really appreciate. Um, for me, it's a very simple answer. I that I cannot time or maybe ever um, because. My own problems. There are some things like um, libraries that could help with them, but they solve um, very specific problems that might be uh, well out of the, the reach what I'm capable of doing given my um, 
uh, well time maybe, but also um, expertise in some areas. So um, using dependencies is um, pretty much um, an enabler for a lot of things um, that I've done because um, you can just rely on them and you know that experts, um, yeah, that care a lot about them and, and the field have implemented them and you can just depend on that. So that's, that's how, um, how I see it. So don't, don't you think though, like, I, I agree with you. Um, uh, as, like, as far as the expertise stuff goes though, uh, there are some modules out there on NPM that are like pretty simple, like most anybody could implement a left pad, for example, um, you know, given it enough time. So what, what other reasons might we uh, like want to use dependencies for these really simple functions that just about anybody could write? Like, or, or should we be doing those kinds of things? Should we maybe just copy some code, like have a gist, have like a, a library or a, a, an index of all these gists that we could search and just copy code? Why, why do we have to use a dependency manager for simple functions like that? I think um, one part of that is that you think you can do it, but there are a lot of edge cases, and it's really um, not that easy to think of all of them and to really get something correct. Because we have seen um, a lot of people who just um, forget some edge cases, forget some some way where an undefined value somewhere could break stuff, and that's that's why you want to have dependencies because um, there um, is this one place where this problem is solved, and if the problem comes up, it's solved in this module, and it's like available for everyone, and so you don't have to um, care about all these edge cases and about the tests and and about errors that are coming up, because you might think it's, it's easy to write something in a few lines, but if you look into um, small modules, maybe they, like if you look at the source code, maybe they're um, handling way more edge cases and um, than you might think, and maybe they are way more exact than, than what you could write just uh, from the top of your head. You know, I 100% I, I agree with Stefan. I think the, the fact that, you know, you know there's another group of individuals and another community Writing good unit tests and taking in bug reports and just you know making even a simple algorithm, uh, ma making sure it runs runs well and, and it was well tested. There's a lot of benefit to that. Um, one thing I have seen with with Yard specifically is, is there definitely is, especially when you're making a little utility library, you'll definitely see pushback against kind of the the hyper module approach where you know you have a one line module or whatever. And I definitely do treat it as a trade-off. Like, I, I, I do have a lot of dependencies in a library like Yards, but I definitely do consider pulling in dependencies very long and hard. Like, sometimes I will just write a little utility function um, to, to avoid adding, you know, increased install time or increased, uh, you know, an increased uh, depth tree. So I, I think it's really a balance, too. Like, I, I don't think everyone... I think you can take advantage of the dependencies in the NPM ecosystem, Without necessarily going 100% to the you know one line hyper modular approach, there's there's room for for stuff in between. Yeah, I I've actually I think if if you're worried about um, a dependency adding I don't know like cognitive overload or, or like or being unnecessary, I think you could go take a look at what that dependency is doing and count the number of edge cases that it's handling that you're not handling. Because like often we look at, look at a module and we say, oh my goodness, this is like five lines of code, or, or even it's one line of code. Like, why would I care about this? But like, I think any developer with more than a couple months experience 
uh, knows that behind just a handful of lines of code is potentially like hours and hours of debugging and, and like figuring out uh, these edge cases and things and, and you know having bugs reported and fixing those bugs and so yeah I, I think that our, our focus shouldn't be is this dependency worth it just because it's a, a handful of line, lines of code it should rather be like is um, is this abstraction something that I want to have included in my code base? Maybe it's uh, not solving the problem in a way that I want it to, and like it's going to have leaky abstractions all over my code base. Um, I think we should be more focused on that rather than the amount of uh, you know dependencies that we have. Um, now, I think though at the same time there are, there are trade-offs that you're making when you add dependencies to your project. Can we talk about some of the like? Uh, some of the things that you're trading off by adding dependencies to a project? Um, yeah, I can. Uh, one that immediately comes to mind, obviously, is if you t start to look at the npm dependency graph. Um, you know, we're going to have to make a request for for each of those those many dependencies, and it can start to increase install time if you if you if your graph starts looking you know a few hundred modules deep. Uh, so that's one that immediately comes to mind for me. But the interesting, there are some interesting workarounds. Like not many people know you can use uh, this this approach called bundle dependencies, which is what npm itself does. Um, and that's going to, you know, if you do have a, a very dependency heavy library, I in fact do this with NYC for a few reasons. If you have a very large stack of dependencies, you can choose to bundle dependencies, and then someone gets delivered the your module in a single uh, tar file. So there's much less argument against uh, having a ton of dependencies if you're if you're using the bundling approach. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So I actually I have a video where I explain this because I remember with LeftPad everybody was like, oh my goodness, like it's you know ten lines of code. You know that was so dumb. Why why can't you just write that ten lines? Um, and like there are, you know, we've already talked about the trade-offs and, and why you might want to have even ten lines of code in, in your product or as a dependency. But if everybody had been using LeftPad as a bundled dependency, then nobody would have broken. Everything would have been just fine. And so I'll um, I'll, I'll link to the video in the show notes of uh, like how bundled dependencies work. Uh, but one of the trade-offs that I mentioned in that video um, that you're making is like using the bundled dependencies is like locking down your version of that dependency and all the transitive dependencies as well, um, which actually is is good in some ways. So, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people have had trouble with, like, things are totally broken. I didn't change any of my code. It just, like, after this time, um, things started to break. And what ended up happening is one of your transitive dependencies was updated with a breaking change, and, like, the world is, is on fire. Um, and so by doing, uh, like, shrink wrap is kind of a solution to that, uh, but bundled dependencies is, is also uh, a great solution uh, for library authors. The trade-off that you're making, though, is if there is, like, a security fix or a performance uh, boost or something, you won't get that until you upgrade uh, your dependency manually and, and upgrade the bundled dependencies as well. Um, and so I think, though, that is t a totally fine approach if you're using something like Greenkeeper. So segue to Greenkeeper. <laughs> yeah, I just I just wanted to say like um, the downside is like you can you can choose pretty much because dependencies are um, always changing in a way. There there will be updates. There will be new versions. Um, or if they don't change, they might become outdated. Um, so it's, it's also a problem. So you can you can either um, depend on a very specific version of the dependency and then 
um, at some point it might become outdated and might become a problem uh, for you to get back on the, onto the latest version as soon as you need a new feature or a security fix or something. So you might might run into problems where you have to update all your dependencies, or if you um, use loose version ranges, so they just get all the versions in um, automatically. You you might run into the risk of your application or your module bre uh, breaking because um, the module might not work. Um, in a way that you expect it anymore, and then, then your module is broken. So you can either be very specific um, of your dependence, pin them all down, then you'll you'll have the pain of updating, or you'll just um, use very loose um, version uh, specifications, and then you'll um, run into the risk of, of stuff breaking. So you you have to find some way of, of navigating that dilemma, pretty much. Yeah, and I don't think there's like a one solution for every project. I, I think you have to kind of evaluate the trade-offs yourself, and it just kind of depends on uh, the type of project that you're doing. Like for for something that's a, a really small module, um, then maybe bundling dependencies would be a good thing. Like those dependencies of your project are part of the project that you're you're shipping off. But at the same time, like you are making other trade-offs as well. Like. Another one that I don't think we really mentioned was um, when you ship, if you're going to bundle this for the browser, then you could have like 40 left pads in your project because everybody's been bundling left pad. Um, and, and now you have all these. Uh, with something like Webpack, though, it, it can dedupe these dependencies um, at bundle time, which is pretty fascinating, really interesting. But uh, yeah, it's like I think you need to evaluate these different uh, trade offs that, you, that you're making uh, with these solutions. I think the, the most important differentiation there is between modules and applications, um, or it's, it's the most obvious one, where um, when you write an application that you want to deploy into production, um, you want to pin down your stuff, um, probably using a shrink wrap file, um, while when you write a module that other people should reuse, then um, you should use ranges so you don't um, control modules that, like, that, that downstream users can no longer control. And then there's stuff like um, CLI tools, um, like NPM, for example, where it's, it's some sort of, of application, but users still install it using NPM, so bundling makes sense. So I think these are the, the, the three cases, pretty much. And then, of course, there are always exceptions. But um, generally, I'd, I'd always use um, version ranges without any bundling in, in applications, tools that you install, um, CLI tools, bundle them, and then for applications, use um, shrink wrap. But shrink wrap mostly as a tool on, on deploy time. So you have reproducible build, and like you can get the same um, you can get the same dependencies, but you sh shouldn't necessarily uh, necessarily use shrink wrap in your Git repository. But maybe we can talk about that um, later. Yeah, I was gonna. Isaac loves to say that npm is a bet on Semver. That's a quote. Uh, so definitely, like I think when you look at the things that the most work are put into in, in npm, and and where we really are continue to try to to help people avoid issues they run into, like left pad. Um, definitely, like the, the workflow we endorse it is very much um, not locking down your dependencies for the most part. Um, but like like Stefan says, uh, at application deployment time is completely different. Like you don't want your production application to now have different dependencies than when your QA team looked at your production application. And any time that 
shrink wrap does not give you a reproducible build is considered a bug, and the CLI team is working on fixing it. So shrink wrap should, um, as, as many issues that people sometimes run into is shrink wrap, it sh the goal of shrink wrap is a guaranteed reproducible build. That's kind of where we're trying to go with it. Well, I'll add a link to uh, like the docs for shrink wrap into the show notes because people may not be entirely familiar with it. Um, actually, on that note, maybe. I just want to say maybe we should explain shrink wrap um, just for clarity. I can do it so. Um, the in um, shrink wrap called um, content for the. Hey, Stefan. Um, so. Uh, ben, is, is Stefan like, kind of hard to hear for you, too? He's breaking up a little bit, yeah. Uh, sorry about that, Stefan. Maybe, uh, Ben, do you want to explain shrink wrap, and maybe we can figure out... Yeah, and I'll try to fix it in the meantime. Okay. Uh, so, so shrink wrap, basically, it takes the current state of your node modules folder and creates a file that sits beside your package.json, which just has a snapshot of everything that's currently installed. Uh, right down to, so even if you're not pinning dependencies in your package.json, you end up with a snapshot with the exact versions that are currently installed and actually the exact registries that they were installed from. So if you were using, you know, if, if some of the dependencies were coming down from a Git dependency and some were coming down from a, an alternate registry you're running, you're, you know, maybe you're running your own registry at work, then shrinkwrap is just a, a point-in-time snapshot of all of that information such that you can reproduce the build exactly. Um, you just run the command npm shrink wrap in any project and it will create that file for you. Uh, I would not recommend, if you're writing a utility library, I would probably not recommend publishing in that manner. Like I, I think Stefan was indicating, it really is a, more of a tool for, for at the time of deploying your application to a server. Um, so what are, what are the trade-offs that I'm making by not just, uh, like, why wouldn't I just like commit my node modules directory to Git. Like that that seems to me to be a pretty solid way to make sure that what I'm deploying is what I'm developing on my machine. So what are the trade-offs I would make if I were to do just um, publish my or commit my node modules directory? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I definitely do lean towards um, bundling dependencies more so myself. I haven't used shrinkwrap too much. But I, I think one could argue if you want to keep your say say that you have you know huge huge dependencies in your node modules folder that you don't want to have checked into your Git repo or published anywhere, and you'd rather have your have, rather have those provisioned on on the server from the registry at install time. I could see an argument in, in that manner. Um, does anything come to mind for you, Stefan? So my main problem would be Git this. Um, because for me, that's a very important tool in, in reading and in, uh, and in any software process much. And um, committing gives you a whole bunch of uh, information. You're breaking up a little bit again, Stefan. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, I got the gist of that, though. So, so to yeah. reiterate Stefan's point, um, Basically, you know, clean Git history. So if you know, every time you check in your Node modules folder, you might have, 20, you know, 300 lines of changed code showing up in your Git commit history. Whereas if you were using a shrink wrap file, um, you would only see the changes in the shrink wrap file, and and then the npm registry would give you that that reproducible install in, in your production environment. 
Isn't there a way, though, with Git, I, like, I'm not a Git master or anything, but isn't there a way to say, like, exclude this directory from diff? Like, I, I don't want to see diffs for this. I know, I know that there's a way to do that for files, but I, I imagine there's a way to do that for diffs. So I feel like there's probably more, uh, like, there are a couple other trade-offs uh, by committing your node mantras directory. Uh, what else comes to mind? Um, I think that uh, it's a less explicit snapshot in time, I would say. So whereas, whereas the, with, the, with the shrink wrap file, you, you have kind of a paper trail of exactly what you've pinned things down to. Whereas with your node modules folder, um, you know, especially if you have somewhat loose ranges in your package JSON for semantic ranges, um, it's going to be def definitely a, a, a less explicit uh, pin. So, so you might have you know, version 1.0.2 of a library that if you were to delete your node modules folder and reinstall everything on a different computer, you'd now end up with 104. But you don't have a, you don't have the same paper trail that you'd have with a shrink wrap file that would say, oh, this actually was 103. So, so if I if you check in your node modules folder, another developer deletes the node modules folder and does a reinstall without something like a shrink wrap file, they're going to end up with a different install than you had on your computer potentially, um, by virtue of semantic ranges. So. Yeah, I and actually that's interesting. I, um, I just saw a tweet today that said that um, I guess there are eight million package JSON files hosted on GitHub right now. And only 1.5 million of those are unique, and so, um, like, presumably, there are a lot of people uh, committing their node modules directory uh, to GitHub, and uh, and so that's where we're getting all the, the duplicate package JSON files, which is kind of interesting to me. Uh, I've never actually had a like any project of any significance that did commit the node modules directory to Git, and so I can't really speak to like from experience to some of the trade-offs that you make by doing that. Um, but it seems to me that, like, if you're doing that by yourself then, or, like, a project you're doing on your own, then that's totally fine and cool. And, and if you plan on, you know, you don't ever plan on other people contributing to this project or whatever, um, you know, it's, it's just something you're working on on the side. But uh, if, if you're working on it, this with a team, then, like, you, you could have all kinds of problems. Like, some people have different versions of NPM and Node installed, and mm -hmm. you should probably be keeping those the same anyway, but, um, you know, when if something isn't working, you know, on, on your machine, what's the first thing you do? Well, let's blow up the Node Monsters directory mm -hmm. and reinstall, and, and now, like, you have this huge Git diff um, thing or, like, all these changes you have to commit with your, uh, with your changes. So... Yeah, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that it's not a good idea to commit your node modules directory. I have, a, I have another really weird kind of edge casey reason to bundle dependencies that I ran into with uh, the tool I write NYC, which is a test coverage tool. Um, I found if you're writing a harness library that's going to run a bunch of other people's libraries, a lot of modules use a singleton pattern. You'd be shocked. And um, because, because MPM3 dedupes modules up to the top-level folder, um, you're going to end up, if, if your utility library uses the same library as one of the dependencies that the utility library is instrumenting, then you can actually stomp on a singleton and, and end up having very strange bugs due to a singleton pattern. So another kind of neat trick um, that Scrum Masters don't want you to know uh, is that if you, if you bundle your dependencies and you're using npm3, it actually will push them one folder deeper in the node modules folder. So you can actually dance around. If, if you have a known kind of singleton-related issue 
uh, you can actually use bundle dependencies as a workaround for that. So um, something I bumped into before and is worth knowing about, I think. Um, but I don't know if it's the bandwidth or the Bluetooth connection, but I've just switched the headset. I think it's better now. Just a little um, better, yeah. Yeah, okay, so then it was the Bluetooth. Yay. Um, so one reason uh, that I also came up with is um, because we were talking about teams working on things, and so if you have node modules in your Git repository, um, you can just modify the files in there. And once that is in, in your um, like merge and somewhere in your Git history, you might never notice. And so it's, it's just a possibility, but you could actually change the module, and it would work for everyone until you reinstall the next time. And it's um, really interesting. And the next thing is with uh, native modules or native extensions. Um, I'm not sure how NPM will handle that. Maybe Ben, you can say more about that. I think that could break as well. Yeah, it, it would break. Um, you would just need to have an extra build, build step on deploy time. You'd have to be running npm rebuild every time you deployed it to production. Um, rather than npm install, you'd run npm rebuild uh, for native dependencies. Yeah, it just seems like let's not commit our node modules to break. Yeah, it seems, seems like, yeah, we've come to, <laughs> come to a conclusion. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So um, let's let's talk about like how do we manage uh, these things. So we, we've we've decided okay, we're not going to commit these. We're going to rely on or, or we're going to uh, put our trust in Semper for uh, like. And then there are two kind of use cases of dependencies that we're talking about. One is um, modules that we're publishing to the registry. Other is app, uh, another is applications that we're deploying to our own service of some kind. Um, and so. Yeah, with, with these two different things in mind, um, like what are some of the other differences uh, that we need to consider when we're uh, when we're managing our dependencies? Like, what are some things that are different between applications and modules that we need to uh, keep into consideration when we're managing dependencies? I think we most, mostly covered that with uh, with shrink wrap. Um, I, I think the big the big one that comes to my mind is just like reproducibility is is very very important in applications. I mean, if I'm writing a utility library, there's this trade-off where you don't you don't necessarily like not everyone's running Greenkeeper, not everyone's going to pull in patches immediately upon them being available. So it's there's it's actually a good trade-off for me to let you have my patch releases because you may never actually upgrade to the the version of my module that has that patch. So just prudence of keeping the, the, the ecosystem, you know, having less security vulnerabilities and what have you, I think it's good for uh, shared module developers to use semantic versioning. But for, for, as we've said, if you're a company, you've gone through a QA process, you know, it might be a day or two before it actually goes into production. You really don't want any bits changing between the, between the QA process and your website actually being in a production environment. Um, so locking down dependencies becomes very important. So, uh, oh, Stefan, are you trying to talk? I can't hear you. Ethan? Okay. Um, well, <laughs> I'll just move on then. Um, I, actually, Stefan, I really wanted to ask you about Greenkeeper, how Greenkeeper uh, works and stuff. But uh, we'll give you a, a chance to... Um, to figure out your microphone issues. Um, this actually is a, a splendid time for me to ask a question that Pam would ask if she were here. 
um, of Ben. So Ben, you work on uh, the project NYC that's pretty much the de facto standard for code coverage these days um, for uh, JavaScript uh, modules. So um, she wanted to know a couple episodes ago why NYC is called NYC. Yeah, so, so the project kind of started out as a weekend kind of joke project, and I was uh, hanging out at the first NPM office with Isaac and Michael Rogers of Request Fame, and uh, we, we, we wanted to test. We wanted to have test coverage on NPM, but NPM had submodules, um, and so there was no way to handle like Istanbul couldn't easily handle subprocesses spawning. So NYC grew out of trying to solve that use case. And so it was really, like, I thought we'd be able to write it in a weekend, and it's turned into, like, a two-year project, and it's become a pretty pretty big code base. Uh, but at the time, we were just, oh, Istanbul, we're trying to do something with Istanbul. There's, uh, they might be giant song called Istanbul, not, in, not Constantinople, Constantinople, in which one of the lines is, even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Yeah. <laughs> So, so basically, we were. It's a play on the. It's a play on the the name Istanbul. It's uh, from the they might be giant song. Um, nice. And also one of the the hardest to Google library names on in in the community, which I apologize, <laughs> <laughs> I apologize for. Yeah, you always had to say NYC coverage, and then yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but even like NYC coverage, it's like you're you're getting news re uh, reports and stuff like that. Yeah, so. yeah. That's what happens when you when you decide on your name as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So actually, um, just out of curiosity, since we're talking about it, um, so now is Istanbul and NYC are pretty much one project now, right? Yeah, I've been working with, I've been working to, to kind of merge the two projects with some of the other maintainers, and it basically came out of, uh, NYC was getting quite a bit of popularity, but it was a completely independent project, and, NY, and uh, Istanbul, um, was gradually moving towards a 1.0 release where it had been turned into a quite a few modules from one command line tool, but it was you know the, they needed more more help to get it over the finish line, so we decided we would combine the two projects and try to to get to the 1.0 release of, uh, of 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 Istanbul using NYC as the the command line application for it. Um, so we're getting pretty close. There's now an Istanbul. Uh, .js.org website where you can soon read some documentation and we're probably going to be at a 1.0 release of Istanbul in a month or so, I think. I hope. Um, so, yeah, th that's what's happening. We're basically com combining forces to take the two projects and, and make a better project by combining them. That's awesome. I think we need to see more of that. I, I would love to see, like, this would never, ever happen, but I'd love to see that, um, like, Browserify and Webpack merging forces, and like I, I, I just think that uh, combining uh, similar tools uh, to find one solution is something that I think we're getting ready for uh, in the JavaScript ecosystem. We're still trying to figure out how to walk in this JavaScript ecosystem, but we're growing up, and and I think it's a good thing to see projects merging. Yeah, that's that's always been my philosophy as a developer is you know like pitch in on a, if there's a project you like, but you're like oh man I, I just wish this one thing was different or this other thing was different. I really believe strongly in, in just trying to contribute and move the whole community forward rather than trying to invent it yourself. Um, so I think there's a lot of value to that because, I mean, there's 300,000 modules in the NPM ecosystem. Uh, I mean, I can't wait for there to be 300,000 more if we need them, but if, if you'd be better off contributing to one of the existing 300,000 modules, I'd rather see those 300,000 get better and better and better as well. So I think there's... 
a lot of value to that. Totally, totally. Cool. Uh, Stefan, do you, are you sounding okay now? I can't hear you. That's all right. Well, um, I did want to talk about a couple tools, so maybe we can uh, still work on that a little bit. But uh, so there are a couple tools that help us manage our uh, dependencies, and one of them is Greenkeeper. And we'll let uh, Stefan talk about that. Hopefully, we get the mic stuff working. Um, but another uh, tool, to, uh, two tools that I like a lot um, are Libraries.io and DependencyCI.com. Uh, um, so Dependency CI is super cool. Actually, Libraries and Dependency CI are both by um, Andrew uh, Nesbitt. And he was going to be on the show, but uh, things just didn't work out for him to, to come on. So I will uh, stumble around trying to explain these tools. Um, but they're fantastic. So Libraries.io is um, um, basically parses a bunch of registries, and like not just NPM, but uh, um, the uh, uh, registries for all kinds of different uh, here, let me just pull it up libraries.io um, for different ecosystems. So like uh, Ruby and Python and, and uh, Swift even um, and NPM, uh, Elm and Atom, like ba uh, Bower. Yeah, tons and tons of um, registries as well as GitHub. And it, it um, parses through all this data, normalizes it for itself, and then uh, it exposes a fantastic search uh, for you to be able to search through these and uh, get some really awesome metadata about these things, like what are the um, dependencies of these projects, and what are the uh, uh, licenses, and uh, some really, yeah, some really interesting uh, things. And you can like subscribe to emails when things are updated, and um, like kind of helps you keep track of, of the dependencies that you have, as well as uh, projects that are dependent on your own projects. Um, yeah, and it's not just things that are published to the registry. Anything that's on um, public on GitHub. Uh, would be available on here. So you can see like applications that use NYC, for example, um, which is really, really cool. So then after building libraries.io, and I, like Andrew is still actively working on this, uh, on this project, but uh, he also launched a new service recently called Dependency CI that does automatic compliance testing for all the dependencies in your app. So um, like licenses are a really big deal, and most of the time you're probably not checking um, the, the license, unless you're at like a bank or something where it's like really, really big deal. Um, but often I don't check um, the licenses as I should. And so, um, yeah, what, uh, what Dependency CI does is um, you stick it up on one of your open source projects, uh, and I believe like there's a paid um, tier for uh, your private uh, repositories. Uh, it will check all your dependencies and your transitive dependencies like all the way down uh, to find out if you have any li uh, license conflicts. Um, and then you can even get a badge off of that and put it on your readme. Um, so yeah, it's really cool. It also, I, I think it does a couple other, um, other things like if one of the libraries that you depend on is uh, deprecated, like libraries.io can uh, determine whether a library is deprecated. Um, and um, if it is, it'll let you know and with the badge. Um, I think you might even be able to like sign up for an email when something gets deprecated or something like that. So um, yeah, that's definitely something to check out. Dependency CI and libraries.io, two very, very cool projects by one very, very cool person who probably gets some very, very awesome contributions from very, very awesome people. <laughs> cool. So cool. Stefan, are you back? Yeah, just. Try restarting the browser. That works. Awesome. You are back. Yeah, we hear you. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, I, I tried joining with the phone, but that didn't work as well. So I'm now back to the MacBook microphone, but it seems to work fine or good enough. Yeah, sounds great. Cool. Uh, Let's hear about Greenkeeper. Been waiting. <laughs> yeah. One thing, one thing that I want to say about um, applications and modules is that. Um, you have a different responsibility because if you add dependencies to your application, um, you just have to like be responsible for your own thing. While when you write a module, you're responsible for what other people download and use. So um, you should have maybe a little bit different um, approach to using dependencies in, in the module. Um, so Greenkeeper, um, as I said, there's like this problem that you either um, get out of date once you pin your dependencies or you run into the problem um, of, of breaking your application by updates just getting in. So a Greenkeeper tries to solve that problem by um, pretty much running your test suite whenever a new version comes out. So the idea is that you can just use version ranges um, and, and, and depend on, on, on dependencies very, very loosely. Um, and Greenkeeper will then, in real time, whenever a new version of a dependencies, uh, dependency comes out, will just create a new branch with the new version applied. Then the CI service is going to pick that up. And if that breaks your, um, breaks your dependency, we'll, uh, like uh, your application or module, we'll inform you about that. And then you get a pull request. So you know that, um, that a minor or patch release just broke your application. So that's kind of the, the approach to solving that problem. So it, it gives you best of both worlds where um, you can use ranges to stay up to date, um, but be, at least be aware of the problems at the same time. And it's also just handy for keeping stuff up to date, because um, if version updates are outside of the specified range, you'll just get a pull request as well. So if there's um, a new major version, you'll just get a pull request, and then you can see the change log and the commits that happened, and then the CI will have run as well, and you can just upgrade, and you don't have to um, create branches and edit the packages and stuff like that all manually. You'll, you'll just have it in your inbox, and, and then you can just work from there. So in the real just need to use hash, and I was getting that feedback. Um, so yeah, when you say real-time um, pull requests, like literally real-time, I've, I've got modules that depend on other modules that I have with Greenkeeper turned on, and I'll publish one, and like instantly, it's, it's really fast, uh, I'll, I'll get an update. OK, yeah, there's a new version um, uh, pull request for that. Um, yeah, so it's super cool. This project that you have at Greenkeeper is solid, and I recommend that people take a look at that. Yeah, I was just going to, we use it for literally everything at MPM at this point, and I use it for all my open source projects. It's definitely, I I'm, I'm, couldn't be more of a convert. Cool. So um, now, do you want to actually, I'm kind of interested, maybe, maybe other people will be interested, but uh, a couple of months ago you had a little um, hiccup with uh, Greenkeeper. Um, somebody was not being very nice. Do you want to uh, talk about that? Uh, the reason that I'm bringing it up is because your response to that was one of the coolest things. Uh, I think you solved that problem really well. Do you know, like, am I being ambiguous enough? <laughs> um, sure, I can, I can, um, yeah, explain what happened there. So, um, so Greenkeeper is not a module that you that you, that you use. It's a service that we are running. So, because we like need to listen to what NPM does and then evaluate some stuff in real time that. Um, 
just can't be on, on your local machine, so it's a service. And, and we're running it trying to make the community um, and the ecosystem a better, better place. And so um, the thing, however, is that we don't have our own interface. We just use pull requests to, um, to communicate with um, GitHub, like with maintainers and collaborators. Because as I said, like we all create a pull request for you, which means we don't have that much control over the, the experience that you're having. And so um, what we usually do is that you will receive a pull request that is from um, a bot account that we created. It's called greenkeeper.io-bot. And then it will um, open the pull request from there. And so um, someone just created a greenkeeper account, uh, GitHub account um, called greenkeeper. L-O, where the L looks pretty much um, like an I if you don't look closely. Um, and just create a pull request. Um, copy like um, the title and the commit messages and, and, and the pull request body. So it pretty much looked like um, Greenkeeper pull request. But um, the content of the pull request was something different. Um, luckily, it wasn't, wasn't anything uh, malicious. but some garbage, and then um, they just send it out to some very um, popular repositories that had Greenkeeper enabled. And the problem was that it just looked like the Greenkeeper um, pull request. And so in at least in one case, this uh, malicious pull request was merged into the project, um, which revealed um, a little security problem there. But, but the, the, the problem we had is that um, Usually, we would expect that someone would just reach out to us and talk about the problem, and then we can look into it and fix it. Um, but this was just an actual attack. Like as I said, it wasn't malicious code in the pull request, but it wasn't like actual attack on the live system to live projects. Um, so yeah, that was um, a bit hard to handle um, for one because it was on a Friday night here, um, but also. Feels a bit, um, yeah, not right. Like if you if you want to run a service and like um, contribute back to to the to the npm ecosystem to the open source thing, trying to like run it for free for for all open source repositories, and then just someone um, is attacking you in that way. So that felt yeah, it was a painful experience. Like it was 2 a.m. or something, and and then we had to address it somehow, which was just um, not that cool. Um, yeah, and then we, like, it was horrible, but we found a pretty good solution for that. Um, problem, so it's actually not a problem anymore, or not, not that big of a problem anymore, because, um, like, you explicitly enable the service for your repository. You um, have rights to the, to the Greenkeeper application. Um, so we can create, um, like we have access to your repository and we can create branches and we can create pull requests there. But what we also can do is create labels on pull requests and statuses on pull requests. So what we do now whenever um, we open a pull request, we'll add a Greenkeeper um, status flag. So it gives you a little green check mark and we'll also automatically add a Greenkeeper label, which just gives you a lot more visual differentiation because if you see a greenkeeper pull request, you'll immediately see the label and you'll immediately see the green check mark. And this is something that um, an attacker could no longer fake. And so we try to increase the signals because, as I said, like it's not our interface. So we try to use the existing 
mechanisms to increase that. Like before, there were also some signals like our bot, which was a very weak um, signal because of like the name, and um, that we create the branch on the same repository while the attacker has to use a fork of the repository and then send that in. So, so the name and the branch were the two signals that existed, and now we added two more that are way more visible and should um, prevent this from, from being problematic in the future. But if in doubt, the, the, the easiest way would still be to just look at the diff and then see if that's actually problematic. Yeah, awesome. I like. I'm almost should have asked you ahead of time if you even wanted to talk about that. I, I apologize I didn't um, because I know that was kind of a painful experience. It's, and not just because it was like, um, you know, frustrating and stuff, but also like you're doing such an awesome service and it's so frustrating when people um, are just not being nice um, when you're doing something so great for the community. So thanks for doing that awesome thing for the community. Greenkeeper is awesome and, and you're still doing awesome stuff. Um, and I, I just wanted to um, say that like your response to that um, experience was was super. Um, and so thanks for um, you know managing it things so that it made it easier for people to uh, to feel comfortable using Greenkeeper um, and then keeping going. Yeah, thank you. Like um, there are a lot of people in the community like you and, and like um, yeah the people that are actually playing nice that 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 motivate um, us to do it, and so it, it um, plays out well. And so, um, like, I decided to, to talk about this. Like, we didn't just introduce the, the security patch for that, but I um, wrote a blog post about it, so, like, I, I um, was pretty public about it anyway, so no problem for not asking. Um, just because, like, I'm not, I'm not even 100% sure if the attacker was aware of uh, what they were doing at this point, so I just wanted to... Um, yeah, point of discussion there, like what what your actions might might cause in other people's um, lives, really. Yeah, because as I said, it was a Friday night. It was 2 a.m. The next morning, I had to get up at 6 a.m. So like the whole day was um, wasted. And it's like it's it's a very little effect that you might might have at your laptop hacking something, but you're affecting other people. I just wanted to to make that visible. Um, yeah, and it's 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 um, worth it for, um, yeah, maybe getting people to reconsider their actions. But um, if that's not happening for for all the other lovely people that are around in this community and and do cool stuff as well, so yeah, I, I think like in the future, um, if somebody finds a vulnerability like that, um, rather than attacking and like demonstrating that vulnerability. Um, something that would have been nicer would be like, hey, FYI, this thing is something you should probably fix. And then you could have, okay, yeah, thanks for letting me know. I'll fix that on Monday when you know, my life like is available to do this stuff. Okay, um, we are running low on our time. Um, and so uh, is there anything else that is really important for people to know about uh, managing dependencies before we move to Twitter questions? I think there's one thing is uh, that's on my mind right now is is the product I'm working on at npm right now is and it's too early to really talk too much about it but we're going to be improving our search to try to make it so it's easier to find dependencies so um, and another tool I might call out in that regard is npms.io which is uh, one of the better search engines out there right now for uh, 
defining dependencies for NPM, um, and it ranks them based on various metrics that are very useful. So, so something on my mind, how do you actually find these dependencies? But I, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole right now. Sure, yeah. Um, I actually, that reminded me of something else that I wanted to mention, and that is, like, one thing that people get frustrated about dependencies and, like, having lots of them is all of the network hits that you have to make to NPM, which makes NPM install slower. Um, and so I was actually having a um, just some Twitter musings the other day where I, I thought of, like, this idea, like, what if all of the, like, what happens is the NPM goes up and says, hey, I need these dependencies. It comes back and it says, hey, okay, these are, you know, like, we're going to resolve these things. And then you, like, you're doing a lot of back and forth with the NPM registry um, just to, to resolve versions and stuff like that. And so I had this idea, like, what if all of that resolution and stuff happened on the NPM registry server, and then it just sent, like, a giant file or, like, several files um, down to you with, like, a single download? And then you unpack that, whatever, and that poof, there's your node modules directory. Um, I can. Uh, that is definitely the plan. I can't. Um, and I know that there's that a few of the registry engineers are. It's it's kind of their their pet project over the next while. It, it's going to be quite a bit of work to actually pull that off, but that is definitely the plan. Um, cool. Yeah. They're they're just trying to figure out how to use like um, like HTTP two and uh, just you know they're trying to find a way to do it with kind of some emergent specs to, 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 to but yeah, that's definitely 100% the plan, and, and so it would feel like just any NPM install would start feeling like you'd bundle dependencies, which would feel way, way faster. Yeah, yeah. So on that Twitter, on those Twitter musings, uh, Forrest actually uh, responded and was like, yeah, that's basically the future, but like, mm -hmm. that would be such a major refactor of the way that things work now. Um, I expect there's certainly no deadlines um, or even like an, an actual working uh, prototype of it yet. Um, so it'll be a while before we experience that glory, but mm -hmm. eventually <laughs> that'd be cool. Um, yeah, there are two other things I might have missed that um, when you were discussing dependency CI and, and stuff like that. But if you're handling dependencies, um, you have also you have to look out for licenses if they, they match what you're trying to do. Um, and you have to or should look out for security patches, and there um, are some cool projects around that, like the Node Security Project or, or Dependency CI. So these are um, two other um, factors of, of, of handling dependencies. And one thing uh, I wanted to add, because I didn't say it before, is how to actually enable um, Greenkeeper for your repository, um, because as I said, it's, it's a service, and like if you want to um, have it running on your repository, you have to tell us about it, uh, that, and you can use a CLI for that, but we actually um, introduced the web interface. It's, it's currently in beta, but you can reach it at app.greenkeeper.io, and from there you can just all enable your repositories in the browser, and it should be really easy. Fantastic. All right, sweet. So we do have uh, two Twitter questions. Let's move on to those. Um, oh, dear, I should probably have practiced this. It's uh, Rugesh uh, Mahapatra. Mahapatra. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and he's asking, uh, Greenkeeper lets us keep dependencies updated. How do we remove ones we no longer use over the development cycles as time goes on? So um, from my understanding, that's not really a Greenkeeper concern as much. Um, but maybe you have something to, to say to that, Stefan. 
Um, just trying to, so how do we remove ones we no longer use? Um, that's, a, that's a pretty good um, question. I think there, um, there should be tools around that maybe because um, every, at least in, in, in your um, production dependencies, you're probably requiring the dependencies. And so um, you could just look at the source code and see what you're requiring and if that matches what's, what's listed in the, um, in the package JSON as well. So um, if, if modules are in your package JSON but not required in the code, you might want to um, remove them and that could be um, a very nice tool. That's maybe out there or not. I at least I don't know it. Yeah, one thing that can, can help, and this only kind of is on a file by file basis, but linters and I particularly like the standard project I use for a lot of my stuff. It will um, it, it will fail linting if you've done if you have any requires that aren't actually used in the in the source file that you've required the module within, and and will fail fail your linting. Um, that doesn't work library. That doesn't work. Uh, I don't know. You might have identified a, a library. One of us should run home and write. Stefan. <laughs> Seems yeah, like a I, yeah. I'm just uh, thinking it could be even easier if you just go in, you uninstall one dependencies, run the tests, and if it passes, you can just remove it. That mm -hmm. will be another way. Uh, but that would require that I test my code. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's great. And actually, uh, to that note, there is a, an ESLint plugin called um, ESLint Plugin Imports, I think, or Import. Um, it's fantastic. But one of the coolest things about it is that if you try to import something um, from a module that isn't listed in one of your dependencies, then you'll get a linting error, which is like awesome. Like, because. It's lots of times because the way the npm3 like tries to push everything up to your root uh, node modules directory, you can really easily fall into a situation where you're importing something or requiring something uh, from a module that you don't actually depend on yourself. And so, using a linter uh, uh, like and that plugin in particular can really help solve that problem. Sorry, that doesn't exactly answer the question um, specifically. I'm sure that there are tools that can like look through your code and see which dependencies you have that you aren't actually requiring, um, but I'm not familiar with any tools like that. Um, so yeah, we, we maybe answered the question in a very technical way, um, but it maybe helps to just um, treat dependencies um, your, or be aware of, of what using dependencies means and like um, thinking about what you, uh, what you do with these dependencies where um, Removing a dependency or no longer needing to depend on on a dependency should something you become aware of. Um, so there's two sides of that, and so on. if something is a mistake, then maybe you can handle it with uh, with tooling. Um, but but on the other hand, if you handle dependencies with care and think about what you do, then you should also become aware of a dependency being no longer needed. Cool. All right. Um, then other question from uh, Palmer J3. Um, shrink wrap is not fully hermetic, which is a new word for me. That means like airtight or like solid, I guess. Um, uh, so it's not fully hermetic due to optional dependencies. What approaches have you taken to work around this? I've never used optional dependencies actually, like ever. Um, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've never. So, so I'm gonna give a. I've never really used optional dependencies too much either, um, except to hear like I've always just been told be beware. Um, but I would say that um, 
it's the goal of Shrinkwrap to be 100% reproducible, so I, would, I, I don't want to speak too much for the CLI team because Forrest will be grumpy at me, but uh, I think it is the goal to make sure that if you've Shrinkwrapped it, whatever, is, whatever you've Shrinkwrapped will be 100% reproducible. So um, I can't speak to any workarounds I've used because that's not part of my workflow, but I can say that any areas in Shrinkwrap where it's not actually meeting it's meeting its claimed functionality, I think, we'll be fixing over time. Um, definitely is the goal to have 100% reproducible, reproducible deployments. Do um, optional dependencies just show up in the screen grab, or is there any special handling for them? I didn't have the, the, the case for optional dependencies in screen grab, so I don't even know how it behaves at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe the problem is that they don't show up in the shrink wrap, and then when you use shrink wrap, um, you're, you you won't have the optional dependencies anymore. Um, but that, like, if that is a problem, then it's not an optional dependency. So I don't know. Maybe we need some more details um, on on the question here as well, and then we can just um, take it further on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, um, and we're we're definitely running it low on our like we're pretty much out of time, but um, that happens often. Um, but uh, yeah, Palmer actually did uh, follow up with optional dependencies that are used often for platform-specific builds, like FS events is a great example. Gotcha. Totally makes sense. Um, yeah, if if you want to, just go to the hashtag JSR question to continue uh, chatting and get follow-ups on on that. I'm sure Palmer would appreciate it. Okay, great. So um, that's our Twitter questions. Let's go ahead and, and jump into our uh, tips and picks. So I'll go ahead and go first, and then uh, Stefan and uh, Ben. We'll have you two go. So for me, I have uh, two tips. Right now, I am out uh, with my family on vacation. Um, my wife was good enough to give me some time to, uh, to do this show. But uh, I, uh, yeah, my first tip is go out into nature. Life is just better uh, when you, you take a break and, and ha hang out with your family and people who are most important um, in nature. It's fun. And uh, second pick is play sports. I played uh, racquetball with my wife this morning, and it was a blast. We don't play sports enough uh, together, so we're, we're going to do more of that because it was fun. Um, for my picks, um, first I'm going to pick Don't Break by Gleb Babmatov. Uh, it's a fantastic module, but basically it runs on your CI, and if you're going to, like, every single time you commit uh, something, it's going to, like, well, I guess you configure this on your CI, but every time you run uh, Don't Break, it's going to... Um, pick your top 10 most dependent modules, or you can specify modules, and it will um, install all of those and then run those modules tests um, to see if, like, if the changes you made are going to break those modules. It's kind of hard to explain, but it, like, it's, it's super. Uh, if you've ever published something and accidentally broke somebody, um, this will solve that problem pretty much. Um, yeah, it's awesome. And the next update is one of my favorite ways to update dependencies. Next update, uh, you run it locally, and when you want to go through and update your dependencies, you just say next update, and it'll go through every single one of your dependencies in your package.json, and it will upgrade one at a time uh, to the latest version and, um, and uh, run your tests. And if your tests pass, then it's like, all right, awesome, and then it'll move to the next dependency um, and go through all of your dependencies. So it can take like a really, really long time um, to run. So this is something you've run like during lunch or something. Um, but with, like one of the cool things about it is that it actually reports success or failure failure to a Heroku server, and so you can get metrics on like how often does this module break 
So now Kent is gone. Oh. Let's give him one minute. The question is, are we still on air? Or, um, like, it still shows life? Yeah. Well, do you want to, let's say, uh, the show must go on. Do you want to do your tips? Yeah, I'll pretend to live, and then yeah. I'll just go on with my stuff. Um, it's kind of ironic, because I wanted to um, have the tips about two things that um, apparently failed today, which are um, noise-canceling headphones. Um, but noise-canceling is pretty awesome, especially if you're um, on the road a lot. It gives you a lot of focus and, and ability to, to work on stuff. So I um, love them a lot, so I just wanted to, um, yeah, say that's that's a cool thing to, to get. And then there, um, I got a pretty um, good router uh, from Netgear, which um, just improved my um, Wi-Fi quality here at home. And it's like, uh, it's worth uh, investing in your router <laughs> if, it, if it doesn't fail um, while, while you're live on the show. But um, other than that, I'll just repeat Ken's uh, tip, take, take a break. It works. It's awesome. Um, and for the picks, um, can't pick the two things uh, that I wanted to pick as well. Don't break and next update. They're pretty good, but I have another one. Uh, it's a library called Bundled Dependencies, and it will uh, you can like run it pre-publish, and then it will copy your dependencies um, into the bundled dependencies field right before publishing, which is what you will need if you want to um, bundle your dependencies. So that's that's a handy tool. You don't have to maintain that um, by hand. Cool. Sorry that I uh, dropped off. I'm not exactly sure what happened, but uh, thanks uh, for picking things up, Shepin. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm guessing you finished up, um, and it's Ben's turn. <laughs> cool. Um, for tips, the first tip is uh, watch Stranger Things on Netflix. It was one of the best shows I've seen in a long time. It's like E.T. meets the X-Files. It's, it's really fun, and it's based in 1983, so fun retro show. The other tip is, if you want to be a first-time open-source contributor and, and would want to contribute to some popular projects, I would love some help with Yargs, which has a website at yargs.js.org, and I would love some help with Istanbul. We have like lots of uh, first-time contributor-friendly stuff, so uh, please come and contribute to those projects. Uh, picks. Um, I'm, I'm going to say there's this library that me and my coworker Andrew have been working on, which is kind of related to a lot of the stuff Stefan does with semantic release and Greenkeeper, but we have a library called standard-version, which uh, basically takes Angular commit conventions and generates a changelog for you and recommends what your semantic bump should be for the package version. So check that out if you're not quite ready to have full semantic release but want to have a similar workflow, uh, try out standard-version. And then, I, I'm sure this has been called out a million times, but I love uh, the standard library for, for my linting because it, uh, it defers all of the argument about code style to a completely separate repo, and it just, just works. You just install it, and it means that folks contributing to your code bases know exactly what style is expected of them, which I really like. So. That is all for me. All right, great. Well, this has been a really interesting show. I, I think that uh, hopefully we've helped people out um, with uh, managing dependencies. So let me just wrap some stuff up. So we do have two silver sponsors that we're grateful for, React.js program. Uh, they help you master the React.js ecosystem. 
And Sentry is cross-platform crash reporting, so check them out for that. Um, as always, we have our, um, I like to get suggestions and feedback, so if you go to jsair.io slash suggest, um, that will allow you to suggest um, topics and guests. Um, like I said, you might actually, uh, well, yeah, tweet me if you have any alternatives for Hangouts on air, uh, because this show might end on September 12th if I can't find a, a good alternative. Um, yeah, and then also for feedback, if you have feedback on this show or uh, the show in general or just want to say hi, uh, then jsair.io slash feedback is a great place to do that. And then jsair.io slash email is where you can sign up for our email newsletter. Um, so, yeah, jump on that. It'd be awesome. Um, and then, again, next week we're going to be talking live and on-site at React Rally, so that's going to be a blast. Um, it will be on Friday, not on Wednesday like normal. Um, and... It may, the time may change. Total, not entirely sure exactly when it will be, but it, it will be great. So check out the website. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus to keep up with the latest. And, uh, yeah, that's it. That's our show. So thanks, everybody, for coming. This has been great, and uh, we'll see you all later. Thank you. Bye.